So good. So good. Uh, hi, friends. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we've been walking, if, if you've been with us for these last number of weeks, through Julie's going home to get her kids to bring them back to the 11 o'clock service to get baptized. So God bless you, Julie. Uh, but we've been walking through these last few weeks, six weeks actually, through the final moments in the life of Jesus laid out for us in the Gospel of Mark. And we've been calling this series Intention. Because really we're diving into the tension of the Bible story. We're diving into the experience of Jesus and his disciples that we might get some of that experience ourselves and allow the story to change us and transform us on a deep soul level. And today on Easter Sunday, amazing how it worked out, we are diving into the story of the resurrection. Uh, Someone may have planned it this way. Now, before we get to our final eight verses today in the Gospel of Mark, I want to back up and kind of set the context for us. I really want us to understand the mindset of the followers of Jesus as they go to the tomb on Easter Sunday morning. And here's what you need to know about the Gospel of Mark. When Mark tells his story of Jesus' life, he gets right to it. He's the no-nonsense gospel writer. He doesn't mess around. He doesn't waste time with backstory. If you read the Gospel of Mark, you'll see there are no genealogies like there are in Matthew and in Luke. There's no sort of grand poetic narrative about how Jesus created all of the universe with a word like there is in the Gospel of John. There's no story in the Gospel of Mark about Jesus' birth. Ricky Bobby's little baby Jesus is not in the gospel of Mark. He skips that whole part and he just gets right to the meat of the story. In fact, by the time you get to just the 15th verse of chapter one, Jesus has already burst onto the scene and we get his first recorded words in this gospel. Listen to him. This is Mark chapter one, verse 15. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is Jesus' opening line. Now, some of you have heard this phrase, the kingdom of God. Others of you, perhaps not. But this was a very familiar phrase, a very common phrase for the Israelites of the first century. In fact, this was a phrase that embodied and encapsulated all of the hopes and all of the dreams of the Jewish people. It was a way of saying, someday God will come and remove all the evil from this world and inaugurate a new and unprecedented kingdom of blessing and joy and abundance. Someday God is going to do that. Someday God will come and bring, and their word was, shalom. Shalom. Shalom is a Hebrew word that means peace. Maybe you've heard people greet one another with the word shalom. It's a word that means peace, but not just peace as in the absence of conflict. Shalom describes an ultimate peace. Shalom describes a peace that brings harmony and wholeness and completeness and prosperity and welfare and justice and tranquility to the entire world. When the kingdom of God brings shalom, it means that God will finally make this very wrong and broken world right again. 
And this is what the Jewish people were hoping for and longing for and waiting for. But I would argue this. Shalom is not just a Jewish hope. It's a people hope. Shalom is a human hope. You see, every single one of us, we want that kind of peace. There's something in us. It's the cry of our souls for things to be right. We want world peace. We're bothered and disturbed by what's happening in the Ukraine. We want inner peace, peace in our minds. We want to sleep all through the night. We don't want to wake up at two in the morning with that nagging worry running through our brains. We want physical peace. We long for good health. We want environmental peace. We need it to stop snowing in April. (laughs) Global warming. It's been hailing all week, and I'm thinking, it's supposed to be resurrection week. What's going on? See, we want economic peace. We need the gas prices to go down. We want political peace. That's a whole nother sermon. We want want relational peace. We want to get along with other people. We want our kids to get along with other people. We want our dogs to get along with other people. Our family has a dog named Fred. Fred's just a little guy. He's a 15-pound Maltese poodle. He's great. My wife, the picture on the right there, my wife recently posted on Instagram with the caption that said, back away and no one gets hurt. Fred loves his bone. Now, Fred is a great dog, but Fred's arch enemy is our neighbor, Bruce. And so anytime Fred is outside and Bruce is outside, Fred goes crazy and he runs and he jumps and he barks all along the fence that borders our two yards. And this is not okay. This does not promote shalom between us and our neighbor, Bruce. And so we pray for Fred, that God will move in his heart and in his life, and that he someday will learn to love his neighbor the way Jesus instructs us to. But all kidding aside, this is what the Jewish people are craving for, this ultimate peace. And it was first and foremost on their minds because at this time, they were very much without it. In our world, in 21st century America, we are afforded a lot of peace. A lot of things are more right for us than they were for them. And so they were longing for peace because they didn't have it. In fact, they were being ruled and oppressed by a cruel and dominating foreign power called Rome. These are an oppressed people longing for peace because Rome had robbed them of shalom in so many ways. And so their prayer, their daily prayer, their hourly prayer was, come, Lord, come. Come and bring your peace. Come and bring your shalom. Come and bring the kingdom of God to our world. This is the Jewish people's heart. And so when Jesus bursts onto the scene in Mark chapter 1 saying, the time has come. The kingdom of God is here. It's come near. All of a sudden with that message, word starts to spread. You see, there is a buzz in the air now and people are talking about this rabbi from Galilee and then, and then, Jesus starts doing it. He, he preaches in a synagogue. This is his first moment in the Gospel of Mark. And while he's preaching, a man who's possessed by a demon stands up and says, 
What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And so what does Jesus do? He rebukes this demon. He tells it to come out of this man. And the man starts to shake and convulse. And then the the demon comes out of this guy. And he's normal again. And the people are flipping out. Why? Because this guy doesn't just talk about spiritual peace. He really brings it. You see, this is a glimpse of shalom. And then Jesus starts healing the sick. People with uncurable conditions like leprosy and paralysis and blindness. Jesus even brings a little girl back to life and the buzz keeps growing. Now he's bringing physical peace and restoration wherever he goes. Then Jesus starts doing this with the weather. Storms come and he calms them with a word. There's huge, terrifying waves, and Jesus just gets out and walks on the water. And people are hearing all this, and they're saying, who is this man, and why is he not a member of the Avengers? (laughs) One scholar I heard this week said, when you read the Gospel of Mark, demons dominate people, and illness makes people less than whole, and nature threatens to destroy, and humans oppress other humans, and Jesus breaks in, and he challenges every other claim to power, everything that comes against the loving rule of God, everything that keeps people in bondage, everything that keeps people from created order, from shalom, Jesus breaks in, and he brings freedom. And people are pumped. And they start to get on board and they're thinking, this is a guy we can rally behind. This is a person we can follow. This might be the Messiah. And they do. They follow Jesus and he feeds them in the desert. And they follow Jesus and he heals their children. And then he frees their friends from evil and he teaches them to love one another and to trust in God. And the word on the street is, this must be the savior we've been waiting for. This must be the one to bring the kingdom and finally bring shalom to our world. But then something happens. Jesus begins to tell his followers that he is going to die. He says, I will be betrayed, condemned, mocked, taunted, humiliated, and crucified on a Roman cross. And not because he has a lot of enemies. Jesus did have some enemies, like every revolutionary does. But Jesus says he won't die because of his enemies. He says, I'll die because I choose to die. He says, I'm willing to go to the cross. In fact, in Mark 10, it says this. Jesus says, we are going to Jerusalem, where I will be delivered over to the chief priests, and the elders of the law, and they will condemn me to death and will hand me over to the Gentiles who will mock me and spit on me, flog me, and kill me. And the disciples are like, well, if that's going to happen in Jerusalem, let's not go there. But Jesus adds these words at the end of that statement. Three days later, I will rise. And the disciples are like, What are you talking about, Jesus? You are not going to die. You're not going to be crucified. You're our leader. You're our hero. You're the one who has come to bring the shalom of the kingdom. That's what we're doing here, isn't it? I mean, here's a man unlike anyone in history. He has the power to do anything. Heal the sick, comfort the brokenhearted, calm the seas, dispel evil, 
put back together everything in this world that has been broken. So why? Why would someone like this die? It made no sense to them. If he can raise others from the dead, he can certainly prevent his own death. But then it happened. Just as Jesus said it would. He was betrayed by Judas arrested by the Jewish authorities, handed over to the Roman authorities, beaten, tortured, crucified, killed, buried. And what did his followers do? They gathered at the entrance to his tomb with signs that read, he'll be back. No, they didn't. Here's what they did, Mark chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? You see, friends, what Mark wants us to understand here is that this is not a moment of hope. This is not a moment of anticipation. Jesus' followers were not headed to the tomb on that Easter Sunday morning with some inclination that perhaps he is alive. Maybe, just maybe, he has risen. No, it is the furthest thing from their minds. The spices, the spices they're carrying are for dead people. It was a way of showing honor and respect, but it was also a practical way of covering up the odor of a decaying cadaver. These women are shocked. They are stunned. They cannot believe this has happened. The story is over. Their leader is dead. Rome has won the day, and Shalom, Shalom will have to wait. In fact, they are filled with so much emotional grief, they have even forgotten to consider how they will get into the tomb. Oh, yeah, they seem to say on the way, who's going to roll the big, giant, heavy rock away? Verse 4, but when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. Friends, I just got to pause here and say, everyone in the Bible is afraid of angels. It's just standard angel response. It's actually the first thing you learn in angel school. They're going to be scared of you, so you just need to tell them right away, don't be afraid. No, actually, this word alarmed is an important word for us. It really captures the moment. It's a complex word. In Greek, it, it combines the emotions of amazement and terror. It's this idea that you are so overwhelmed and astonished and astounded by something you are seeing that you are paralyzed and afraid. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go and tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. You see, sometimes as 21st century Westerners, we talk about the Bible and the story of Jesus, and we're tempted, I think, to think about things this way. Those ancient hillbilly Middle Easterners, they might have believed in this sort of thing. They might have bought into all these legends and fairy tales, but we know better than that now. We're smarter than they are. We aren't as gullible as they were back then. Friends, don't be ignorant and don't be arrogant. 
What Mark is telling us here is that these people struggled with this message just like you and I might. No, they didn't have the internet. They didn't have iPhones. They weren't addicted to beeps and dings and buzzes like Pavlov's dogs the way we are. But they were smart. They were thinking, thoughtful people who who thoroughly and critically considered what they believed just the way we do. This is why in the Gospel of John, Thomas, one of Jesus' most ardent and committed followers, says, you telling me he's alive? I'm not buying it. I'm not believing it, not until I can put my fingers in the holes in his hands that were put there by the nails. Why? Because he's not gullible. He doesn't just believe anything he's told. That's why in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has to come and he has to eat a fish in their presence. Why does he do it? Because he's proving to them, I'm not a ghost. Because they're all thinking, how are you here? We saw you die. And Mark 2 is sharing the same message with us. That Jesus' resurrection is not just some legend that they bought into real easily. But that it was so unreal. That it was so unbelievable that they don't even know what to think. They are shocked and stunned. This is why the angel says, go and find him in Galilee. Go see for yourself. Go discover it with your own eyes. And again, at this point of the story, for me, you would think there would be a shift, at least a little shift, right? Like Jesus is dead and he's crucified. They watched him hang on the cross. They watched a soldier drive a spear up into his side, into his heart, just to make sure that he was dead. They watched his body as it was wrapped in linen and laid in a tomb. But now they show up. The stone is rolled away. His body is gone. And an angel is not only telling them that he's alive, but the angel is reminding them he predicted it. He said this would happen, remember, just as he told you. You see, in my mind, at this point, it's time to party. I mean, I might not be fully convinced, Maybe 60%, maybe 80%, but I'm at least starting to hope maybe he's alive. The way this gospel should now conclude is these women skipping away from the tomb, singing and whistling and hugging and laughing through tears as they tell everyone they've encountered, he's alive, he is risen, the tomb is empty. But that's not how the story ends. Here's how the story ends in Mark, verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, The women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Friends, the ramifications of his possible resurrection are so enormous that these women cannot even wrap their brains around it. They can't talk about it to anyone because they just don't know what to say or what to think. You see, if it is true... If Jesus is alive and the tomb is empty, it means some huge things. It means sin doesn't have the last word. Failure doesn't have the last word. Betrayal doesn't have the last word. War doesn't have the last word. Addiction doesn't have the last word. Violence doesn't have the last word. Abuse doesn't have the last word. Suffering doesn't have the last word. Injustice doesn't have the last word. Divorce doesn't have the last word. Cancer doesn't have the last word. Friends, if Jesus is alive, not even death, not even the grave can have the last word in your life. 
You see, Easter teaches us that even when it seems like things in this world are treacherous, even when things in our culture are tenuous, even when things in your life are dubious, we know the end of the story. We already know the end. Let me, let me give you an illustration that may fall short, but I really like and may also help you understand the reality of Easter. This year, the Beaverton High School girls varsity basketball team, coached by our very own Kathy Nero and her husband John, who might be here this morning, I'm just saying, they won the state championship. It, yeah, you can cheer for it. Why? Here's why. It was the first state championship won by a Beaverton girls varsity basketball team ever, and it was the first Beaverton High School team to win a championship in any sport since 1999, since the last century, people. So was it a big deal when they won? It was a huge deal. Now, at the championship game, our student section was perched at one end of the gym, and our opponent's student section was directly across from them on the other end of the gym. And like student sections do, they were cheering back and forth, taunting one another, and harassing one another. But our student section had the advantage because in the first half, our team, led, by the way, by our point guard, Matty Nero, who is a straight baller and was baptized right here at Cedar Mill Bible Church. On Easter, Matty, was it Easter? Or was it just a regular Sunday? It was Easter. It was a number of Easter's ago. So Maddie leads the charge. We jump out to a huge lead. End of the first quarter, we're winning 19 to 2. They could barely even get a shot off on us. Our defense was just tenacious. And so we go into halftime. We're dominating. Like the game seems all but over. We come out in the second half, and suddenly, their team starts to do a little better. We're still leading by a lot, but they got a few layups, and then they hit a couple three-pointers, and their crowd started to get back into the game, and their student section starts to taunt and jeer at our student section again. And in those moments when our opponent seemed to be gaining a little ground, our student section resorted to the most classic Confidence-building, security-clinging, hope-reminding cheer of all cheers. Do you know what it is? In unison, they started to say, scoreboard, scoreboard, scoreboard. In other words, they were saying essentially this, you might have hit a shot. You may have gotten that loose ball. You may have had that foul call go your way. But we know what the end of the game will bring. We know that you cannot beat us. We know that when the final buzzer sounds, we will be victorious. So cheer at us and taunt us and harass us all you want, because in the end, we will win. Let me suggest this to you, friends. Because of Easter... Because of the resurrection, because the tomb is empty, if you are a follower of Jesus, you can look at the struggles and difficulties and even tragedies of this life and simply say back to them, scoreboard, scoreboard, scoreboard. In other words, we know the end of the story. Because 
of Jesus' victory. We will be victorious. And so no matter what comes our way, we can have shalom, peace. Here's another way to put it. You know, if you're watching a game of your favorite team, and that game has been recorded, and one of your friends has told you the score at the end because they sold on you, right? Like, like don't tell me, but they told you. Now you know the outcome already. All of a sudden, knowing the outcome, knowing that your team is going to win, as you watch the game, the highs and the lows of that game don't affect you very much, do they? Oh, we lost the ball. Oh, it's a turnover. Oh, there's a penalty. Oh, they scored a touchdown or whatever, or a three-pointer. Oh, big deal. I know we're going to win, right? That's how life is for a follower of Jesus. That's how life is for you and me if we follow Christ. You see, if we're not followers of Jesus, if this world is it, if this world is all we live for, if the grave is our last stop, if death is truly the end, then struggle and tragedy and failure and disappointments and hurt and pain and disease, they are a big deal. They are a huge bummer because they interrupt this life we have and this life is all we got. But if the grave is empty... And if death has been defeated, we can live even in this fallen, broken, crazy world with peace because we know the end of the story. Friends, we can look at life, even life's most devastating disappointments and say, scoreboard. I know my God has, that's it. Say it again, scoreboard. Get used to it. Say it to the bully at school. I know my God has won the day and so I will have shalom. So how, friends, how do we get that? How do we get that hope and peace and confidence and security for this life? Here's what Romans 10.9 says. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will have shalom. You will be his kid. You will have peace and hope and eternity. I want to invite you today to place your hope, your trust, your life into the hands of Jesus. To not just know about the resurrection, but to trust the resurrection for your life. To invite shalom into your soul. For some in this room, you have. You've trusted Jesus and you are trusting Jesus. You've received his grace and love and you are following him and walking with him daily in that shalom. And maybe today is a chance for you to simply say to God, I'm still in. I'm still with you. I'm still trusting you. Help me to continue to walk with you, Lord. Others in this room have trusted Jesus. You've believed in your heart. You've confessed with your mouth. But the truth is this. Today... You've wandered. You've you've wandered off. You've grown distant from God. Maybe you've started looking to someone or something else in this world for strength and safety and security and fulfillment. Today, God maybe wants to invite you to come home, come back to your first love, return to your heavenly Father. The scriptures say he is waiting for you with open arms to receive you. And then finally, there are some in this room who've never Put your faith and your trust in Jesus. Some in this room have perhaps never said, Jesus, you are the way, you are the truth, you are the life, you are my King and Savior and the Lord. And friends, I don't know what's been in your way. I don't don't know what's, what's been stopping you. Maybe it's doubts or fears or perhaps some past hurts that you've experienced, maybe even in the church. 
Maybe you've gotten confused by all the different messages in our world about who you have to be or how you have to think or what you need to believe about certain issues in order to come to Jesus. Friends, hear me today. This is what the scriptures teach. There is only one requirement to come to Jesus. Believe that he died and rose from the grave for you. Trust that in your heart and make him Lord of your life. Say, Jesus, from now on, you call the shots from this day forward for me. All the other details he will work out with you and in you over time. The question today is simple. Do you believe Jesus rose from the dead and will you trust him as Lord of your life? At the other end of that offer is shalom. Friends, if you are any of those people today, any of those people, I'm gonna pray in just a minute. Here's my invitation to you. Pray with me. Just let my words guide your words in your mind as you talk directly to God. He is here. He is listening. He has got his eye on you. And so if you feel like he is calling to you today, don't miss this chance to respond. We're going to pray together in just a minute and then for just a minute. And then I have just a few more things for you before we close in worship. So let's pray together right now. Father, our hearts are longing. We do recognize this world just points it out time and time again that we need something more, that we were created for something more, that we are yearning for something more, for peace that goes beyond what this place can offer us. And God, we know that it's offered in you. So I pray today, Lord, for those who want to just say, I'm still with you, Jesus. I pray today, Lord, for those who maybe need to come back home, come back to walking with you and trusting you and growing in you. I pray, God, that, that we would do that, Lord. We just say to you, God, I'm coming home today. And then finally, I'm praying for those in this room who've never trusted you. Father, that I pray they would just say to you right now, I need you, Lord. I, I've, I've needed you for so long, and I don't know why. I, I don't know what's kept me. Maybe it's just been pride. Maybe it's been confusion. Maybe it's been fear or doubt or just a, an unwillingness to give up control. But today, Lord, I do. I surrender to you. I trust your death and resurrection for me. I believe it in my heart and my soul. I, and God, I trust that you can lead my life in the ways of joy and hope and peace. And so I turn over control to you. I want to be your follower. I want to be your son. I want to be your daughter. That's, that's my prayer. And Father, for all who've prayed that today, and even for those maybe who are not yet ready, Holy Spirit, come, continue to do your work in us and through us, that we could be your people and that we could have your shalom in this world. That's our prayer. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Two things. If you prayed today, any one of those three prayers, even just the first one, right? Tell someone, tell a trusted brother or sister in the Lord, a friend, come tell one of our pastoral staff, Pastor Ashley's right down here in her Raised to Life t-shirt. She'd love to talk to you about what it means to walk with Jesus. I'll be around. Um, tell someone, it's not something to keep to yourself. Second, baptism. The scriptures teach that the public way of identifying with Jesus, the way of sort of declaring it to the world to say, I'm a follower of Christ, I'm one of his, his death and resurrection were for me, is baptism. 
We are buried with him. We are crucified with Christ. We experience his death and resurrection. We are dead to sin and alive in Christ. That's the symbolism of going down into the water and then back up. We have people today who are going to be baptized. Um, All of them are scheduled for 11 o'clock service. That wasn't on purpose. It's just how it worked. But maybe today there's some people to be baptized in this service. I see you out there, nine o'clock. You guys are, you're a little sleepier, but you're still alive in Christ. Maybe today there's some people in this room. See, if, here's, what, here's what the Bible says. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you, you should be baptized. You should do it. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to walk with Jesus long enough. You don't have to perfect your Christianity. No, in baptism, you're saying, I'm not good enough, but he is good enough. In, in baptism, you're saying, like, it was his death that saved me, not my good works. And so if you're a follower of Jesus today, maybe this Easter Sunday is your Sunday. It was Maddie's a few Easter's back, but maybe today is your day for baptism Come right down here. I'm going to pray again. And just another, we're just overpraying today. Can you overpray on Easter? I don't know, but we're doing it. I'm going to pray again. During my prayer, if you want to be baptized today, we got t-shirts in the back. We got shorts in the back. We got towels in the back. Lay all your excuses at the door. Maybe it's time. Maybe you've been putting it off. Maybe you've been walking with Jesus for 10, 20, 30 years and you've never got in that tank. And this day, Easter Sunday is your day. Come back here. Just come back into the back. We can talk to you about it. You can do it at this service. We can wait. You can do it at 11. It's not a sales pitch. This is not me trying to like get you to do something for my benefit. Friends, to declare Christ as Lord is one of the greatest joys you will ever experience. There's something about it that just lodges that shalom deep in your mind and a heart and life. And so if you haven't done it yet, it's an invitation to you. It's available. So Everyone, just, close, just because it's sometimes intimidating to get up and walk down front and come up onto the platform, we're all going to close our eyes for just 15 more seconds as I pray. If today's your day, don't let anything stop you. Don't let fear get in the way. Just stand up, put one foot in front of the other, and come right on back. Josh will kind of help you find the way. There he is right there. So walk towards him, and he'll help you. Ready? Let's pray. Father, today is your day. It's the day that you defeated death. It's the day that that you rose from that grave. You walked in and you said, death will no longer rule you. I'm gonna take him down, humanity. I'm gonna take him down, world. I'm gonna take him down, universe. He no longer gets the last word. We win the game. So we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for your faithfulness, for your love, for your peace, for your joy. And I thank you for those today who've committed again to you or maybe even committed to you for the very first time. We pray all this together in Christ's name as we stand together to worship. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. Let's stand and sing.